And so the question is that I used to have all my friends at work or friends at whatever, and now I'm alone. And being alone is not good. It comes down to do they want to do something about it or don't they? And for the most part, uh, they kind of sort of do, but don't do enough. That's Tom Wilson, author of a book on retirement, and Lawrence Pentak, addressing the impact of social media on American politics. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. A report was released by the Social Science Research Council. Islamophobia, Stoking Fears and Prejudices in the 2018 Midterm Elections. Lawrence Pentak, co-author of the report and professor at the Edward R. Morrow College of Communication at Washington State University, spoke with me about why we should pay attention to its findings. If retirement is just around the corner, you will want to stick around and hear what Tom Wilson has to say. He is author of a book, Next Stage, In Your Retirement, Create the Life You Want. Many people are just utter failures in retirement because they just don't plan. Question of the week, Seattle Freeze, myth or reality? Let me first define what the Seattle Freeze is as I understand it. The Seattle Freeze is a perception that Seattleites are not very welcoming to newcomers. We may smile and say, hey, have a good one, or enjoy your day, but beyond that, we really don't care. Some say it's because of our Scandinavian heritage or the weather. Some say the Seattle freeze is just a myth or urban legend, meaning that is repeated so often people actually believe it. What do you think? If you are a newcomer or have lived here a long time, have you experienced the Seattle freeze? Call 425-653-1166 and leave your thoughts on the Voices of Experience hotline and I will play your observations on a future show. That's 425-653-1166. Back with my interview with Lawrence Pintak in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Islamophobia, Stoking Fears and Prejudice in the 2018 Midterm Elections was released this week by the Social Science Research Council. The major focus of the research was to examine how two Muslim candidates for Congress and now Representatives Ihan Omar and Rashida Tlaib endured hateful and threatening tweets throughout the campaign. The study focused on the origins of the bots and where the hate speech originated from. I spoke with Lawrence Pintak, the lead author of the report and professor at the Edward R. Morrow College of Communication at Washington State University. I first asked, what prompted the study? 
Well, we did a major study of Twitter and other social media around Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, the two uh, women who were uh, Muslim women who were elected to Congress, and several other Congress uh, uh, candidates. And what we found was just massive levels of Islamophobia, of anti-Muslim sentiment, of xenophobic sentiment. When we looked at Ilan Omar's Twitter network, all of the tweets that mentioned her or tagged her, we found that 50% contained overtly anti-Muslim language, and 70% of the tweets came from accounts that had posted anti-Muslim material. What did you uncover that we may not know from before? That most of it is bots. Most of it is automated accounts that are run by faceless people, organizations, governments that is fostering this. So the actual offensive tweets come from just a handful of people, accounts that are automated but actually run by a person, but we don't know who they are. Now, that's so scary. I mean, when you look at something, your column appears in the New York Times. They know who you are. How can outlets allow this to happen, basically? Don't they see the damage that's being done? Well, it's not just, you know, reading about it in the New York Times. We we are providing copies of this report, this 100-page report published by the Social Science Research Council, providing copies of that to Twitter and to Facebook. They are aware uh, in detail of what's going on and how it's going on. I mean, it, it comes down to do they want to do something about it or don't they? And for the most part, uh, they kind of sort of do, but don't do enough. How much revenue, and maybe this is a question you can't answer, but do they get from political advertising? I mean, is it half their income? Is it 25%? I, I don't know what the figures are for Facebook. Um, interestingly, just last week, Jack Dorsey, the head of, of Twitter, announced that Twitter will no longer carry political advertising. But there was a line that I, I quote in this, this New York Times op-ed, uh, a line from him in that statement about the fact that uh, you, we don't want uh, material coming at people, attack material, offensive material coming at people, which is what so much of this political advertising is. But he doesn't address the fact that, as our study shows, that kind of thing is coming from them, from faceless people who are creating this toxic dialogue or narrative, um, despite the fact that people don't want it. It comes at them, and they get hooked in. They don't realize. We found that there were many people who just forwarded one offensive tweet, you know, kind of automatically. Uh, uh, the, the term of slacktivism, when you like something, well, this is the Islamophobic equivalent of that. Do you think it's a little bit disingenuous for him to do this then? Absolutely. It's, you know, it's, it's playing to the crowd. It's a show. It's yeah, a show. Exactly. Just like uh, trying to do. Um, the other thing you brought up, I read in the column, is that a lot of people will post things and then it disappears. It's not the post itself, it's the account. So we went back, so we had studied the two months leading up to the 2018 midterm elections. We went back in July of 2019 and looked at these accounts, and about 15% of them were simply gone. And, you know, this is the equivalent of a drug dealer with a, a burn phone, burner phone, uses it for that deal and then throws it away. And that's what these faceless organizations do. They'll set up thousands of bot network, of bot accounts, and then after they've achieved their goal, they just shut down the accounts, in part so they can't be traced back to them. And these bot accounts you're talking about, we're not talking about hundreds of thousands of people or even thousands. There's... Well, and it's also foreign intelligence organizations doing it. Um, it's um, 
organizations, nefarious organizations that are doing it, and they will set up hundreds or thousands of bots, of bot accounts, fake accounts. When I say a fake account, I mean you go on, it, the account exists, you, you log on to the homepage of that Twitter account, and there's some kind of generic picture of a generic person. Uh, there may be a name or it may be just a set of numbers or, or, you know, Patriot Joe or something like that. And there are various characteristics when we look at them that signal to us that they're bots. And then there are algorithms and software that we can run against that account to see if it exhibits the characteristics of a bot, which one of those is if I go to your Twitter homepage, uh, you may have tweeted. It'll tell me how many times you've tweeted. Maybe it's, you know, a thousand times or five thousand times. These things are tens of thousands of times because they're constantly tweeting. And no human being can be constantly tweeting 24-7. Is this something that just may lose its impact because of that? I don't know. Um, it certainly has impact now because most people don't realize this. The president of the United States apparently doesn't realize this because he has, for the big New York Times study last week, he has forwarded many um, tweets from bot accounts, some from known foreign intelligence agencies. Um, now, whether he knows it's a bot account or not, probably not, because uh, it looks and smells. And in case of these accounts that are partly automated and partly an individual or organization behind them that are physically posting things, they'll post things saying, you know, what a great president Donald Trump is, and then he forwards it. And that means that all these people in his network then suddenly see that account and start following that account, and that ups the impact of this, this nefarious bot account. Scary stuff. Final question, and that has to do just in the big picture here. Can a democracy survive or are we on life support now with all this disinformation? In reality, we had fake news back in Thomas Jefferson's time. I mean, newspapers were printing completely bogus information, you know, and they were owned by politicians. So, you know, Jefferson is posting or printing stuff about his opponents and others are printing it about him, et cetera, et cetera. And we had Islamophobia as well. I mean, um, Obama wasn't the first president to be accused of being a, a secret Muslim. So all of this stuff has existed. The difference, of course, is that we are bombarded by it. And we wake up in the morning and it's, you know, it's Trump, Trump, Trump. And we go to bed at night and it's Trump, Trump, Trump. And much of that is, is fake, false, exaggerated from one side and from the other side. So it's, it's a much bigger problem now. That's Lawrence Pintak professor at the Edward R. Murrow College of Communication at Washington State University, Jonathan Albright of Columbia University, and Brian J. Bowe of Western Washington University co-authored the report as well. The New York Times and the Washington Post recently published summaries of their research. Entrepreneur and co-founder of Help a Reporter Out, Peter Shankman, briefly addresses customer service or lack of. Yeah, I mean, the basic premise behind that concept is that in any customer interaction, we expect to be treated like crap. We don't really expect to be treated well. I don't need people to be amazing. I don't need them to be over the top incredible. I just need them to be a little bit better than what we expect. But because our expectations are so low, if we can train our customers and major companies to just be a little bit better than essentially crap, uh, we can own the entire game. 
Exactly. Well, you know, one of the things I wrote a book recently called Pre-Flight Checklist is self-employment for you. And one of the points I make in the book is about the airlines and how incredible they really are that they move millions of people literally, and they really are the safest form of transportation. When I get into rent a car, then my experience goes down. And when I rent a car, I don't care what the agency is, I am so pleased when there is not something that goes wrong. Either the price is too high, the car is dirty, they treat you like hell, you don't know whether you have the gas option or not. It's always, always a negative experience, except, again, rare when I bring a car in. And based on your type of formula, I would, if I wanted to, to start a rental car agency and do it right. Not only would I agree with that, but what I find really funny is that, again, the, the, one of the worst experiences I ever had was with Hertz, right? And I was at a place where all the car rental locations were in one building. So I just walked, I walked like 50 feet over to uh, Avis. And Avis, not only did they go out of their way to treat me well, but they, at that point they didn't have to. As long as they didn't essentially stab me in the eye, I would have been thrilled, right? So I am a huge Avis fan for life now because all they did was just treat me a little bit better than Hertz did. thinking about retiring anytime soon, you may want to stick around and hear what the next guest has to say. For most of our life, control is in the hands of other people. For example, we don't choose our parents, and in the first years of our life, we go to elementary school, junior, senior high school. The actual first decision that we come to about our lifestyle is what do we do after high school? Do we go on to college? Try to find our first job? Do we go into the military? And often that's still influenced by your parents. And so from that point on, your life is pretty structured with activities. It's only when you get older and you start thinking about retirement, you have to look at really some options that you may have ahead of you. If you're fortunate and you have good health, you may have 20 to 30 years left after retirement or many more years than that. And this could be the dream that you've always been waiting for. I've known so many people who count off the days to retirement And then they get really bored because how many rounds of golf can you play or how many fish can you catch? Very impressive amount, I'm sure, but is that all there is? So there can be a lot of frustration that goes along with retirement if you don't get proactive. Now, Tom Wilson, my guest today, wrote a book about what you should do and how to approach retirement. Now, there are books written about finances, travel, downsizing, and other aspects to retirement. But what Tom has tried to do in this book is to put all of these considerations in one book called Next Stage, In Your Retirement, Create the Life You Want. My first question to Tom was, what was his inspiration for the book? So I hit 60 like a lot of people. So I was dealing with the sort of transition to the sort of next generation of that group and thinking about, so what am I going to do? I think I'm going to have hopefully 20 or 30 years of healthy life ahead of me. And was I kind of ready for doing something different? And so I started reading a bunch of books and they were all kind of very focused on one thing like financial planning or uh, some things on health and things about power of purpose. But no one really ever kind of put that stuff together in a way that made some sense to me. I, I learned that there are 10,000 people a day turning 65. So I didn't feel much, I didn't feel alone. I just that there's like this phenomenon that's happening. And I decided, you know, I think there's a book here and it's got to be about something that's more a sort of a one shop 
one place that integrates a lot of these concepts that people talk about in these various books in terms of like, you know, who are you and what you're going to be. And so uh, as I uh, walked my dog through the woods of Concord, um, thought a lot about what to do with that. And this emerged was like, and I interviewed people and read these books and stuff. And I said, you know, there are really five questions that seem to be common. So what are you going to do with your time? And are you going to have enough money? And uh, who are you going to live with about relationships and how do you stay healthy? Lots of interesting stuff about health, you know, and then the issues around identity and lifestyle and stuff like that. So I just found myself fascinated by the idea of saying, um, I kind of put this together and put it in a way that would be research-based and tell stories and provide worksheets and checklists and guidance to help people figure out their own solution. When I talk to various people about their finances, I think they're doing much better than they think they are, and it takes some mm-hmm, financial mm-hmm. planning, and they would be at a better place, but they don't seem to do that. Do you find that at all? Absolutely, and it's almost the rouge they put around why they aren't dealing with some more important issues, like, so who are you going to be? when you retire, when you ask you the question, so what do you do? There's like a choke that occurs in people's throats. And so a lot of people say, I'm hesitant about that. And they will talk about money. It's like the reason that people say the reason they leave their companies is because of pay. And oftentimes that's obviously not the answer. But some people do need to worry about it. I mean, most people do need to worry about it. And so the question is, how can you do things that you really want to do in this life while you still can and make money at it that you can live on? And so there's this living responsibly kind of question that's sort of implied in all this um, for some people and others, um, you know, it's it's relax. OK, your financial planner has got it all figured out and you can see what the numbers look like. And, you know, you can live on four percent of your assets and have a nice life. What about the people who are, let's say, facing retirement and they're coming mm-hmm. down the pike and they haven't asked these questions? What do you think mm-hmm. is the first thing they should do? You have this laid out really well and you say, like, what do you want to do with your time? And that right. sounds easy, but I think it's real difficult. When I do this, and this kind of goes back a bit of my sort of training background, is I help people look both backwards and forwards. And so I had this wonderful story I want to tell you about that I was at a, a baseball game. I'm a Red Sox fan. obviously live in Boston. And I was at their training camp in Fort Myers, and I was sitting next to this guy that was like naive, four years old. And um, so I said to Tony, we got talking, whatever. I said, Tony, so what's the secret for a long life? And he looks at me and he points his finger and he says, never stop working. And he realized, we were laughing about that. And his wife leans over and says, and he never sits down. And what was so interesting about the story with Tony is that he's actually true. It's not about work, but it's about doing things that are purposeful and have meaning for you. And that will actually create something that keeps you going. So with that, I said, okay, well, who can help somebody answer that question? If you look back on the times in your life when you were in your element, you just love doing what you're doing. And don't just look at one, maybe look at four or five or six of some really interesting, useful experiences that you, you know, World War III could come and go and you wouldn't even notice because you were so engaged and so energized by what you were doing. And then also look at the things that you're really good at. What are your core strengths, your uh, unique abilities, the things that you're really, really good at? So if you can find ways 
ways of doing the things that you love doing, using the skills, maybe helping to refine those in some ways in some capacity, and look for creative ways to do that, what you find is that people find a level of meaning that they don't get by just sort of playing another round of golf. Maybe there's something else that you ought to begin looking at. So part of what I try to do... Proactive versus having things come to you all the time. You have to get out there. Absolutely. You know, that's a really good point because I look at this thing in in an interesting sort of way. So if you fast forward to a point in time in your life when you can't get around, you physically are just not able. So you've got some time between where you are today and where you are at that point in time to do the things that you really want to do, to be able to look back on your life and say, you know, my life was well lived and I did what I wanted to do with it. And that's sort of my wish for people is that they would use this time both to figure that out and then to do it. Because I like to say frequently, if not now, when? That's great advice. And uh, let's move Mm -hmm. on to another one, and that is staying healthy beyond, let's say, the obvious eating well, exercise, and and get plenty of sleep. What what would you expand on that? (laughs) I was talking to a naturalist, natural food uh, uh, counselor the other day, and he was saying that what he advises his clients is everybody knows is about fruits and vegetables. But, you know, if you allow 20% of your diet to be stuff that's junk food or whatever, not healthy food, but you maintain fairly disciplined around the 80%, you'll be healthy because your body can tolerate some level of intolerance, you know? And so there's certain things that we can do that it allows us to focus on the things that is in fact helpful. Like, you know, they talk about the Mediterranean diet, the blue zone diet, um, and in exercising, the part of the thing about exercise is, is making it fun. So they can do like fast walking or they can do riding bicycles or wherever they can sort of do something more almost every day that gives you some level of get your heart going. And then as you were saying is everybody has certain things, small things they can do that is to take care of themselves. And it could be things like, um, you know, how you focus on vitamins, how you look at um, like getting, like you said, about sleep or, you know, there's some really interesting things that people are doing because you have to take ownership of your health. The research is showing that, you know, only 25% of your health is, is a function of your genetics and 75% is based on your behavior. The person that's responsible for you is yourself. And so what can you do now? Even if you wait till your 70s to start exercising on a regular basis, it will have enormous benefits in terms of dementia, your stamina, and doing whatever. So it's about finding little things that you do that starts changing your own behavior in a way that you say, you know, I feel good about that. The people who do live into their 90s and have a healthy lifestyle, they're always on the move. They're doing something. So that spoke to me that activity is so important to get up and out the door and doing things. Yeah. And our longevity in other parts, other developed countries, longevity is actually increasing like about three months every year. In the United States, it's actually going down. And a lot of it has to do with um, obesity and, you know, some, you know, addictive habits, smoking and, you know, other kinds of alcohol and stuff like that. So the stuff that's so interesting about all this is the the book is not probably going to give somebody totally new information. Oh my God. And now I found the, you know, the panacea It's stuff that people probably already know, but to some stuff, it gives them some more reason as to understand it a little more deeply about whatever it might be talking about. And then to sort of say, you know, time to take ownership of your own health or your time or your relationships and start to deal with them because the next stage is going to be harder. It's kind of a call to action, but trying to do it in a nice way because I'm a nice guy. Um, now you're 
your book is called Next Stage in Your Retirement, uh-huh. Create the Life You Want. And you also have a website, uh, yep. www.mynextstage.org. You've got great information yep. on that. So you can also order yep. the book on that. But before I yep. let you go, I want to ask one other question yeah. here. And this sure. is kind of a dicey one. And that is find out who you want to live with going forward. Now, I think that's a default <laughs> decision for many of us. I hope we don't cause mm-hmm. divorces in this conversation. Right. <laughs> could you elaborate on that? What's interesting is it's not just about your primary relationship, although a lot of the divorce rate of people over 60 has tripled in the last 10 years. So this is a question for some people. A lot of people in their work life were with a community of people. They were working with you know the band of brothers or sisters or whatever. And now on Tuesday afternoon, they're alone. And so the question is that I used to have all my friends at work or friends at whatever, and now I'm alone. And being alone is not good. Uh, so part of the challenge is to look at rebuilding yourself as a community of people that you can hang out with, just sort of replace them. And we, it is clear that men in a primary relationship do better in terms of longevity and, and the quality of that life than men who are single. But that's not true for women. But women who had a group of sisters they could hang out with actually had the same effect as having with a male having a primary relationship. One of the people I talked to, he was discovering that he didn't have the kind of relationship with his kids that he had wanted. He had had a divorce quite a number of years ago, and you know he kind of let the relationship with his kids wander. And he said, you know, I want to rebuild my relationship with my kids. So it touches people in lots of ways, but relationships are uh, pretty damn important. That's Tom Wilson, author of the book, Next Stage, In Your Retirement, Create the Life You Want. If you would like to find out more about the book or other suggestions from Tom about retirement, visit his website at mynextstage.org. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. My thanks to Lawrence Pintak, Peter Shankman, and Tom Wilson for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Question of the week. What do you think about the Seattle freeze, myth or reality? Call 425-653-1166 and leave your impressions, and I'll broadcast your thoughts in a future show. That's 425-653-1166. The Seattle Freeze. Is it real? Veterans Day was originally Armistice Day. It was renamed Veterans Day in 1954. This is courtesy of USA Facts, a website founded by Steve Ballmer. What a relief. Just the facts, huh? 7% of American adults are veterans. That's 18 million people. There were more than 26 million veterans in 2000. More veterans are accessing education benefits. The Department of Veteran Affairs reports that education assistance was the second most used benefit from 2013 to 2016. The 2018 veteran unemployment rate was 3.5%. Veterans earn nearly $10,000 more than adult civilians. Very surprising. In 2018, 
the VA estimated that there were 38,000 veterans facing homelessness. That's down nearly 50% from the 2001 estimate at 65,000. Better news than I thought. A reminder that Voices of Experience airs Tuesday afternoons at 4.30 p.m. and Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. You can listen to all the shows by Googling KKNW, click on to podcasts, and then locate Voices of Experience, and you are there. Congratulations to the Seattle Sounders and the Seattle Seahawks for two incredible back-to-back wins over a two-day period, providing a needed lift to the Seattle sports scene. Have a great rest of the week.